Saturday, December 12th, Sports Possessions at the Liberty Center in Westchester, Ohio, brings to you former WWE superstar Kevin Thorne, also known as Mordecai, come meet the Pale Rider and become a member of the Bike Club just in time for the holidays. That's Saturday, December 12th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, comes to Sports Possessions at the brand new Liberty Center in Westchester, Ohio. Visit sportspossessions.com for more information or call 513-759-2600. Kevin Thorne is back, and it's time for you to join the Bike Club. Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today empowered by Bombas. Bombas is a mind-blowing athletic leisure sock with a mission to help those in need. And please be sure to stay tuned a little bit later on in the show. And we're going to tell you all about where you can get a special promo just for being a listener of the two-man power trip of wrestling, courtesy of Bombas. And with that being said... I'm going to welcome myself in right now, and that's Chad. Hello. Nice to talk to you. And, of course, I'm always joined by my tag team partner, primetime John Paz. And, John, today on the show, we are absolutely honored to add another guest to the epic series of the two-man power trip of wrestling, and that is Jerry Lynn, the former ECW world champion, the former TNA X Division champion, and all-around respected, and I'm going to say it, i you know, I say it a couple times during the interview, but universally respected by his peers. Jerry Lynn joins us, and Jerry Lynn being part of this epic series is absolutely unbelievable because not necessarily known for being a promo guy, 
But what a talker Jerry Lynn was and what a storyteller. And that's great because you know what kind of storyteller he was in the ring. But when he can get outside of the ring and talk to us and talk about his recovery from his injuries and what he's gone through over the last couple of months, it was absolutely fantastic to be able to spend the time with Jerry that we did. And John, I want to get your take on the fact that Jerry Lynn, like I said, universally respected by his peers and obviously the fan base loves Jerry Lynn. But what is it about Jerry Lynn that makes him so universally respected. Yes, Chatty Boy, we're back here. Yet again, another epic episode of the two-man power trip. Like you said, a part of our epic series. And if you think about the epic series that we've had, I mean, these are these long, awesome, just truly, there's no other word to say it, but just epic interviews. I mean, they tend to be a little bit longer, a lot more information. You get a lot more stuff from these guys. So you th- think back to other epic series, Scotty Riggs, Matt Morgan, Al Snow, and now you're throwing in the new Evan show, Jerry Lynn, to that list. And, uh, you know, like you said, the take on Jerry Lynn, for sure, universally respected by his peers, 100% all through the board. If you think about the GoFundMe campaign for his neck surgery and the outcry of support, not only from his fans, but from the wrestlers in the business you know, and guys that, you know, that were almost considered... Uh, like his family, they were really treated him like his family and truly helped out in the GoFundMe campaign. And boy, was that uh, support quick! And uh, the money was all raised, and they actually did more money than you know than was the goal. So great job by Brian Fritz setting that up, and uh, great job by everyone who participated and everyone who donated to Jerry. So that was great, and it just shows you the universal respect that he has by his peers, and you know, and of course by his friends. But you know, think back to. All the, uh, you know, all the territories he wrestled in, all the leagues he wrestled in, uh, WWE, ECW, WWE, ROH, TNA. I mean, he's been there, he's done that, and everywhere he's been, he's been truly, truly loved and respected by his peers 100%. And, you know, through his career, he's not really known as a promo guy. He, you, know, you never really hear him have too much to say on, on the mic, and when he does, it's usually impactful and it's usually something important, but it was great because he's such a great storyteller in the ring, and it was so great to get him on for the show because he's such a great storyteller when he was talking to us, and that's what you know makes him a part of this epic series. And and he did such a long, great interview. It was such an honor to be able to do it because Jerry's one of the all-time greats. He's one of my all-time favorites, and it's just awesome to be able to ask, you know, a lot of the questions we wanted to ask him and, and get a lot of the stories out of him. So, ton of fun, great interview, and, uh, you know, I can't stress it enough. This one was an epic. Now, you want to talk about epics, you want to talk about feuds that really stand out when it comes to Jerry Lynn, you want to talk about his feud with a former guest, and that is Justin Credible. And if you go back and listen to the Justin Credible episode and you kind of dissect what Justin Credible has to say about psychology and some of the things that go into making a match or, or making a good babyface or a good heel, well, you know what? You could see why these two definitely had that chemistry together, and it's because they are identical with what they have to say. And I know, you know, it's one of our favorite feuds just because of the fact, you know, we've, we've gotten to know Justin pretty well. And, and, you know, it's something he highly, highly regards in his career as being such a great part of it. But, you know, with the two of them being on the same page and nearly being identical with what they had to say about the psychology of a match, I mean, I guess would you really be too surprised that these two had such an incredible feud together? but not discounting even one single solitary bit, the other phenomenal feuds that Jerry Lynn had throughout his career. You go back and you really think about Jerry Lynn and his great feuds, and you got to think about 
the feud, of course, that we talked about because, you know, he's a friend of the show, of course, and that's Just Incredible. And uh, we mentioned it on the Just Incredible episode of our show. So go back uh, to the iTunes feed, go back wherever you got to find it and go download the episode and hear what Justin has to say about Jerry Lynn. But it's great to get his thoughts on this feud. And obviously they both had great things to say about each other. They both loved the feud. They both loved each other. They both knew how great the feud was and how great their matches were. And you go back and you look at the psychology of both guys. And you and you talk to uh, Justin Credible like we did on that episode. And we get his psychology of a match. And we talk to Jerry Lynn and we get his psychology of a match. And there's no wonder that these two had such great chemistry because it literally was a mirror image. What Credible said all those months ago was the same thing that Jerry Lynn said on this interview. It was crazy. It was like, oh my God, I love these old school guys. They have such a smart mind for the business. They get it. They know exactly what they're talking about. They know exactly what you know what, what these guys should be doing in the wrestling business. And they both basically hit the nail on the head. And you'll definitely uh, stay interested and hear that part of the interview for sure. Because not only talk about the feud between those two, which was just you know great unto itself but then of course their psychology of a match and it's so funny no wonder that these guys had such great chemistry they had the exact same take on the psychology of a match and how the match should go and and how each wrestler doesn't need to be selfish and just it just goes to show you why those two gelled so well together just right from the start when they first had both had their first match in ECW together all the way through you know to the matches at Hardcore Homecoming and through TNA and everywhere else that they wrestled so just uh, unbelievable you know to get their takes on their on their feud and on those matches for sure and also of course Jerry talks in detail about global where he had a great feud with sean waltman aka the lightning kid then of course in tna when he had a great great feud with the phenomenal aj styles and of course you go back to ecw where he had a phenomenal feud you know with rob van dam which you know they had a bunch of superb matches highly ranked matches so it's just awesome to be able to, you know, you pinpoint a great feud and you're able to talk to Jerry so clear and just get his opinion and get his take on those great feuds. So definitely check that out because Jerry's got a lot of good things to say about all those feuds. We really hope you enjoy this interview with Jerry Lynn. We really hope that you go back and check out the prior episode with Justin Credible so you could hear what he had to say about his feud with Jerry Lynn and, and about the similar psychology that the two have and the methods that they go through to put a match together. Please go back and check out Justin Credible. You also get a small dose of Lita on that episode as well, so that's a little added extra. But, John, before we throw it over to the interview, why don't you tell him a little bit about Bombas and hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. That's right, chatty boy. Bombas is back, baby. The greatest sock in the history of socks is back. Remember their mission. It is to help the homeless. So remember, every time that you buy a pair of Bomba socks, one pair does get donated to the homeless. It is the number one requested item down at the homeless shelter. So not only are you getting the greatest sock in the history of socks, you're also helping. So remember the mission, folks, and that is Bombas. Be better. Now, when you want to make that Bombas purchase, go to our website, tmptfwrestling.com. That is tmptfwrestling.com. And on the upper left-hand corner, you will see the Bombas link. And please do all your Bombas shopping through us. Now for some other TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Rasslin' Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. 
Also, subscribe to us on YouTube. We always put up great clips of all of our episodes, so check us out there. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, while you're there, check out the feed for past great episodes with the late, great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, good old J.R. Jim Ross, WWE's Kane, WWE's Dean Ambrose, Sergeant Slaughter, Mr. Wonderful Paul Ondorf, Tully Blanchard, Stan, the Lariat Hansen, and so many others. So please check us out on iTunes. Also, check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. That's right, you can go to the website, I-95 Sports Network, or you can actually just Google it up and check us out there. We are live and in color every week on there, so please check us out. Again, that is the I-95 Sports Network. And for any of those interested in booking Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, please email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. And now, without any further ado, we send it along to another episode that we would consider an epic He's a former NWA Tag Team Champion. He's a former TNA X Division Champion. He's a former ECW World Heavyweight Champion. And, of course, he's a former Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Champion. He is one of the greatest of all times. Perhaps the most underrated worker in the history of the business. He is the new effing show, Jerry Lynn. Please enjoy. Well, joining us on the line tonight is a man who is universally respected by his peers and generally regarded as being one of the greatest professional wrestlers to ever step foot into the squared circle. And with a resume that speaks for itself with such accolades as former ECW world champion, former Ring of Honor world champion, a two-time NWA tag team champion, a two-time TNA X Division champion, and something we're going to ask him about Ask him about in just a little while his reign as WWF light heavyweight champion. He's been known as the new F and show, and tonight he's a guest of our show. Jerry Lynn, thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, so the first question is the easiest one is, how are you feeling? Um, well, uh, I'm still in pain because, um, I've still got a bulging disc that's hitting the nerve root, so it shoots down my left leg. But uh, the main thing was I got my neck fixed because um, <laughs> I went to see the doctor initially because of the pain shooting down my leg, but I also told him about the numbness and tingling down my arm. And finally, after seeing an orthopedic and the whole nine yards, he said, well, all right, let's, uh, let's get a couple MRIs. So when... Uh, he read off the results, the orthopedic. I mean, a lot of it I didn't understand. And he mentioned, uh, you know, we have two surgeons here, and he mentioned their names. And I said, well, the one had already done a previous back surgery on me back in uh, 2010. And uh, so I asked for him again because he did a great job. And so I went and sat with him and went over the MRIs and told him about the leg and how painful it was. He says, well, and he shows me the MRI and, 
where the disc is bulging, and he says, but that's the least of your worries. And then he shows me the MRI for my neck, and it was it was pretty bad. He said uh, that I needed to get it taken care of as soon as possible. So he said if I were to be in a car accident or have a bad fall, I'd have some serious injuries. And he didn't want to say the P word, but he pretty much meant I'd be paralyzed because I had spinal stenosis in a half dozen places, and one of the spots was around my spinal cord. And where that was, there was hardly any room for any fluid. And there was a couple of spots in the MRI. He says, those are bruises. He says, you've bruised your spinal cord. And then there was a little dent. He said, you've actually damaged your spinal cord. He says, I'm I'm surprised you're doing as well as you are. So in the last couple of years, I wrestled, too. About every other match, I'd get a bad stinger and shoot down my arm. So I think I was very fortunate. I think... Uh, God was watching out for me because there's no telling how many times I could have been paralyzed. So yeah, I'm totally. very thankful. I'm, yeah, no, totally. And uh, I wanted to mention the feel-good story of the summer, which was the GoFundMe campaign uh, for your medical fund and, you know, the, the outpouring of support and the comments. I mean, just to read some of the comments, you know, it's just as a, even as a fan and a, and a supporter of yours, just to read it, it's very touching to know, you know, the fans have such a connection to you. But with the whole GoFundMe project, and then, of course, a good friend of our show, uh, Wolfie D, and his T-shirt design, uh, you know, as a tribute to you, what was that like, uh, knowing that you were going through a lot with the uh, the procedures and, you know, a lot of questions going into surgery and coming out, but what was that fan response like to you in terms of uh, just knowing who really does love you out there? It was overwhelming. I mean, you know, and it wasn't, I mean, and I... I'd seen some, you know, as fans from all over the world. There was fans from, you know, Japan, Mexico, uh, England. Um, I think Helsinki was one of them. I mean, it was it was amazing. And, you know, not just the fans. There were promoters that I used to work for, indie promoters. And there was, you know, um, wrestlers. <laughs> and, I mean, it was it was really amazing. And it was, like I said, it was very overwhelming and uh um, I, I always said there's no crying in wrestling, but it 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 brought tears to my eyes. So it was pretty incredible. And we also we can't forget Brian Fritz, who also was behind the GoFundMe, and he's really been, you know, a big supporter. And he's uh, he did a great job of putting that together, and it was over eighteen thousand uh, dollars overseeing the goal by a lot. Which, like I said, it's just it's it's a testament to the outreach that you had in your career you know, for the fan base to come out in, in droves and really uh, show their love uh, to you. But now, was there anything, you know, as you were winding down your career, and we'll get into all of it, obviously, but just was there anything that really um, was really bugging you or a standout, you know, move or match or something that by the end you were like, all right, this is it, you know, this next one is definitely the next to the last one or the last one or whatever. But was there anything that you can remember that really stood out as like, if you had any doubts about retiring, like this really hammered it home? Well, after my first back injury, when I ruptured a disc training for the first time I was supposed to wrestle RVD and TNA, um, it pretty much just, it ended it ended my full-time career just like that. And I kind of knew, you know, I knew I wasn't a spring chicken anymore and I was hurting, you know, and I knew I couldn't move like I could 10 years earlier. So I knew 
the time to quit was coming, but I just didn't know it was going to happen that abruptly. And then after the surgery, you know, I felt better. You know, I didn't have the shooting pain down my leg anymore, and I thought, well, I'll just wrestle part-time. But after every match, my body was just screaming at me, what are you doing, you know? So I knew I knew it was time, but it's... It's hard to accept, you know, <laughs> after wrestling for, you know, you're in your 24th year of wrestling. It's just hard to to give up. And so it just happened. Um, I was wrestling Dan Moff for Pro Wrestling Syndicate, and he had gotten concussed during the match, and I didn't know it, and he didn't. I don't think he knew it either. He was pretty loopy, and... And then because of that, he took a DDT bed and got a bad stinger near the end of the match, and uh, he couldn't feel his legs. And I pretty much had to, like, pull him on top of me for the pin. And so when they were taking a look at him, it just a light bulb went off, and I just realized I'm pushing my luck here, you know. And uh, it was right then and there while they were looking at him, I grabbed the mic and announced that the, that was the last year I was going to wrestle. And, I, you know, I thought, all right, I'll just, you know, have one, two matches a month and and then call it quits at the end of the year. Well, as soon as word got out that I was, that was my last year, the phone started ringing off the hook. And I forgot how many regulars I used to have on the indie scene because I never would kill anyone with my feet because I always wanted repeat work. So all of a sudden I had all these regulars that I used to work for just calling and coming out of the woodwork trying to get me one last time. Well, here I ended up, I only wanted two matches a month. Here I was having double and triple shots every weekend. And and I'm like, and it was hard. And then a lot of them, They'd say, "All right, I want you know, I, I want you to work my best guy, and they want some, you know, twenty-five, thirty-minute X division spectacular." And I'm like, "I can't do that anymore. I, I'm retiring for a reason. My body's shot." So I was begging, "Please put me in like a three-way or a four-way something." <laughs> <laughs> That's well, they didn't make it easy on question. me. The, they didn't make it easy on my, on my last run. They didn't make it easy on me at all. Yeah, like I said, that was my next question was, you know, seeing that last run and seeing, you know, the three ways or four ways. And I was going to ask if that was something that, you know, you preferred at that point. But also, you know, you know, that with your career going back to, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, by the time you're retiring, a lot of the guys from your generation when you got in, which is so crazy because to me it feels like that's yesterday. But, um, you know, not as many guys working uh, as there once were. Did you find that the younger guys thrived working with you in those, you know, multi-man matches because they kind of got to work a little bit more uh, one-on-one? Like, you could work with different guys one-on-one at different points in the match. Do you feel like that, you know, the younger guys you were working with maybe got more out of doing that? Um, I don't know if they – I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if they got more out of it or – I guess it just depended if uh, – you know, if cause I I got a lot of guys that you know look forward to working with me, but and then you know in in multi man matches it's hard to get a lot out of it because it's it's a different kind of match and it's it's hard to uh, you know have a lot make sense in a match like that. So 
I don't know if they get a lot out of it. I think you get a lot more out of, you know, having a singles match and telling a story or even a tag team match and telling a story. Because the more men you put into a match, the more difficult it is to tell any stories or have a lot of it make sense. It gets very difficult. Very, very true on that. And uh, what's an even more interesting story is, you know, you debuted all the way back in 1988, and then you retire basically almost exactly, or I believe it is exactly, 25 years after the fact. But if I could go back to, you know, 1988, how did you actually, you know, get your start, and who actually trained you to wrestle? Well, I uh, had met a wrestler he, he was doing a Russian gimmick in the old AWA called Soldat Ustinov. And I went to go watch him on an indie show that Ed Sharkey was running at a ballroom. And, uh, you know, I talked to him after the... That was the night I met him, and I talked to him after the match and told him, you know, I'd always been a fan of wrestling. He said, well, you should give it a try. And I said, no way. You know, I was too small. He says, no, nah, they match guys up your size. Yeah, right, they do. Not back then, they didn't. Because <laughs> the majority of the guys were, you know, over six foot tall and 250 plus pounds. But uh, he introduced me to Ed Sharkey, and I went down and saw his camp, and I found out how you break into the business back then. But I knew I wasn't ready. So I just thought I'd train a couple of years and, and then see if I was ready then and see what happened. So a guy I happened to be working with on my regular job had found out about Brad Rangans was having a last-minute camp. And so we both decided to go through it together. And so got trained by Brad Rangans. And then, uh, you know, after that, he'd gotten us, you know, given us a couple sheets of uh, different promotions to work for. And, you know, and of course got in touch with Ed Sharkey right away and did a lot of stuff in the Midwest for Eddie. And, uh, the other, you know, promotions, you, you just get 8 by 10s and make a resume and get whatever video footage you could and mail it out. It would be just like applying for a job. Now, obviously, Brad Reagan's I mean, pretty uh, famous as far as, you know, wrestling and being just an all-around great trainer. And obviously, he trained a lot of other great stars besides yourself. But what was it like training with him? Would you say it was like... Uh, you know, he was being extra tough on you guys, or what's, like, his style? Um, no, it was tough. It wasn't It wasn't a walk in the park. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of repetition, so everything would eventually become, like, second nature. A lot of repetition, and, that, you know, a lot of conditioning. I mean, the first few weeks, we didn't even get in the ring. It was all amateur wrestling on mats and conditioning, and, and then, you know, if, uh, if you were doing something wrong, he would, you know, get in there with you. And if you, I mean, there was, back then, there was a huge, huge emphasis on safety and taking care of each other. Because, you know, you got to get up and work, go to the next town and work the next day. So it was very important. And, you know, it is dangerous. I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't think it's dangerous and think it's all fake, but, uh, I mean, something as simple as just hitting the ropes is dangerous. You could snap your knee or your ankle if you hit the ropes wrong. But uh, so there's always a big em emphasis on safety. And if you did something wrong, he would get in there and show you what you were doing wrong and how it felt. And then, you know, 
So he would, you know, shoot on you and hook you a little bit just to let you know how it felt, just to just to make you keep in mind safety, you know. And then, of course, we learned a lot of different submissions and stuff. And so he'd uh, stretch you a little bit just so you would feel what the submission hold is supposed to actually feel like and how you're supposed to actually have it hooked in properly. But it, it was rough. I mean, it was uh, – but it was – I couldn't think of a better trainer, you know, like you said, he's trained so many, a lot of top stars throughout the years. There's no doubt about it. You know, obviously, you know, his training kind of led to, uh, you know, obviously a great uh, Hall of Fame career for you. And to fast forward just a tiny bit, you ended up in uh, GWF and Global, and that's where you kind of really made a name for yourself, and you had an amazing feud, kind of the, I guess you would say it was ahead of its time, feud with uh, Sean Waltman. What was it like, you know, at that point? Because you guys had a great run. It's like about a two-year run. I mean, you got stuff like you guys shoot it for. What was it like working with the Lightning Kid, Sean Waltman? It was awesome. He had moved up from Tampa because I think uh, Malenko's dad trained him, and I think he may have trained a little bit with Carl Gotch. But his grandparents were in Minnesota, so he moved up to Minnesota, and we got to be really good friends, and we get together just about every day and watch whatever tapes we could find, anything from Mexico to Japan to England, you name it. And um, we, you know, tried. We just loved it so much. We would incorporate all, trying to incorporate all the different styles into, you know, one package, just to try and make things a little more exciting. And and uh, I think some of my favorite work was with Sean when he was lightning kid back then because uh we had people actually believing that we hated each other's guts and you know we'd tear it up pretty good and it was it was exciting because uh you know we had this we would Eddie ran this one bar once a month and we had the place standing room only it was just an exciting time and and uh you know it was it was a fun learning process too as we went on and then um, uh, Ed Sharkey and Dennis Carluzzo did a couple joint shows in Minneapolis. And on one of the shows, I actually, one or both was uh, Eddie Gilbert. And I had handed, gave him my resume and pictures and everything. And he actually, the winter before Global, had brought me down to the USWA in Memphis. So I worked down there for the first winter. And I, I was, it was just amazing. I was just uh, flattered that Eddie, you know, liked my work and brought me down to Memphis. And then after that run, I moved back to Minneapolis. And then the next winter, he called me up again and he wanted to, uh, they'd already started using uh, Sean. And he, he asked me if I want to come down and redo our feud down in Global. And I said, sure. So that was exciting, too, because we finally, you know, we we had been in a two-year feud up in the Midwest, just all over the place, the Dakotas, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, you name it. And finally, we got to showcase it on a nationwide network. Actually, I don't know, ESPN, I don't know if it was all over the world then or not. So that was exciting because we finally got to get some national exposure which was absolutely definitely great and and going back to global did you you know did you think that global had 
you know, an ability to become bigger than it was, or did you kind of think, you know, it was going to end up where it ended up? Well, it's tough when you're, because they weren't really, they weren't running any house shows, you know, they were just doing the TV show. So, you know, unless the network is paying you a decent amount of money to be on their network, you know, they weren't really making any money. And um, I had moved to Nashville the second time because they'd been using a lot of wrestlers from Tennessee. So I moved back to Nashville and we would just drive to Dallas every weekend and do it because when the budget got started getting tight, they stopped flying people in. So that's one reason I always moved to where the work was because if you're there, they'll keep using you even if they stop flying people in. Hmm. Very, very smart. And, uh, you know, very veteran-like maneuver there. But if I could fast forward just a little tiny bit into, you know, the, your future a little bit there. I know, I believe you spent some time at Smoky Mountain, but then, you know, you become Mr. JL eventually around, the, you know, 1995 and WCW. But how did, you know, you get on WCW's radar? And who brought you into WCW? Um, actually, I was going to say, I only did the, I did the very first TV taping for Smoky Mountain, and that was it. Oh, oh okay. When I had... What happened was I had when I went to Global, I had come back from a broken ankle too soon, and the whole time in Global, my ankle was bothering me really bad. And then, uh, so finally, I decided I'd take some time off. But right before that, um, Cornette had asked me to, I think, he, to go do their first TV taping, and I wished that my ankle wasn't messed up so bad because I would have loved to work in Smoky Mountain a lot more. But uh, as far as the uh, WCW and the Mr. JL thing, I had been, Sean and I had been going to Japan quite a bit for this lucha company called UWA. And I saw a lot of cool mass gimmicks over there and I thought, well, no one's doing this in the States. So I thought, you know, and uh, I thought I'd come up with a gimmick and try and do it in the States. And so, and what really triggered it was Brad had called me up and asked me to come down and help him train uh, a new class in his camp. And so at this time, it had been seven years I'd been wrestling, and I asked him finally, I said, Brad, I said, it's been seven years. I said, what have I got to do to get a break? And he says, it's all changed now. He says, wrestling's all TV now. He says, you've got to come up with something visual that's going to grab people's attention and stop them from channel surfing. And that's when the light bulb went off. I thought, I'll come up with a mask gimmick. And at the time, the Power Rangers were super huge. And I thought, well, I'll come up with something similar to the Power Rangers, but kind of alien-like. And so... I had a guy, I was at, I was actually working in a screen printing shop at the time, and I had one of the guys in the art department help me uh, come up with the design. So I had it made, and I showed Brad, and he got in touch with WCW, and we sent him the, the design, the pictures, and footage of me wearing it, and they said that's exactly what they'd been looking for. So they brought me down on a nightly deal, and... uh they gave me the name Mr. JL. I wanted to have something like the Phantasm or something like that, you know, but they didn't want to slap anything on me without any researching and copyright infringement. So, And this was right at the last minute. I mean, right 
probably an hour before I'm going on TV for the first time with the outfit, and they slapped that name on me. So, um, and that's how Mr. JL all got started. Now, when you first, you know, got there, and you know, you're on your night of the deal or whatever. Who are you kind of dealing with? Who is kind of like, you know, your producer, so to speak? Oh Lord, <laughs> I don't, I don't really remember much of <laughs> of that. It was, it, you know, to tell you the truth, it wasn't very organized. And you know, maybe they were. The, oh boy, you know, at first I was on a night in the deal. I broke my arm, messed it up pretty bad working Malenko on a nitro, and I was off for like nine weeks. And then when I called them, said I was ready to go again, they gave me a one year deal. And I had to move to Atlanta for it. But uh, it just, there wasn't a lot of organization. I mean, there'd be sometimes, it'd be, you know, five, ten minutes before going live on Nitro before they'd finally have the board up with the lineup of who wrestling who and in what order. And it was crazy. It was like, how are you supposed to, you know, put together any, you know, decent matches or anything in that amount of time? You do hear that a lot, you know, uh, from a lot of the wrestlers we interviewed. You know, it was kind of pandemonium backstage, and you almost hear that with a lot of uh, the WWE right now. So, you know, it never uh, never equates to the, the talent being happy, you know, what's going on backstage. But in the ring, when you actually got out there and had some amazing matches, I remember the, the Malenko match, and I remember some great matches you had with uh, Eddie and Benoit as well. Did you, you know, enjoy your in-ring time with WCW? Um. Yes and no. <laughs> you know? I mean, there was some times where I didn't enjoy it, like, like especially when we'd be down at Disney MGM Studios or Universal and doing, you know, uh, a few months of TV tapings. I mean, there was one week I had, in six days, I had 19 matches. And wow. I could barely stand up straight at the end of that week. It was, I was a hurting unit. But, uh, so you know, it just depended. And um, I guess one of my favorite times was when I wrestled uh, Brad Armstrong. Every, you know, people ask me, who's the best wrestler you ever wrestled? And I say, Brad Armstrong, because it was like I was in the ring with no one. It was He was amazing. Talk about smooth. I, you know, he, he beat himself up for me. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I hardly felt it. You know, you hardly felt him at all in the ring. It was pretty incredible. You hear that a lot about Brad Austin. Very, very underrated guy. And we were talking to uh, Dr. Tom not too long ago, and he also said Brad Armstrong was basically his favorite guy to wrestle. Oh, yeah. If you, you could, I'd still be wrestling if I could wrestle him around the loop. You know, you could wrestle him <laughs> 300 days a year and come out of there singing, <laughs> dancing every time, not feeling like you've been through a war. And with the WCW, obviously, I mean, you, you had some other mem- like memorable matches. I remember Alex Wright and uh, Sabu and guys like that. But the old story is, you know, you basically got fired, but you were injured. How did that whole thing go? Did you ask for your release, or were you actually, you know, fired by Bischoff while you were injured? Actually, um, no, I, w- I wasn't fired while I was injured. I w- that was WWE fired me while I was injured. Uh, oh, WCW, I had a broken i went to new japan for a three-week tour and the second day i broke my foot so i had 
hobbled and got through the first two weeks. I tried, you know, Black Cat over there was nice enough to give me some pain pills so I could just take one before each match and go wrestling. But, uh, and a lot of the matches over there, you know, most, a lot of it except for the go-home was all ad-libbed. And, you know, you're working with a lot of guys who didn't speak English. There were Mexicans who didn't speak English. And, and one of the guys moved when I went to drop kick him. I landed upside down on my head and shoulder and messed up my shoulder. And that was like two weeks in. And that's, so I wrestled. I asked for one day off because I could barely get a shirt on and off. And they said, no, we'll send you home. And they knew I was messed up because I couldn't even walk right. So, you know, when I got back... I think I had eight, six or eight weeks to heal up that broken foot, and then I started up again. And then just when my contract was up, they just didn't renew it, which was, you know, kind of a shame because you know at that point, watching Mr. JL, you know, you obviously see this guy has got a ton of potential and he's a good wrestler. But what was the well, off? It was, it was, it was bad timing, you know, and it was because. At that time, you know, WCW had all the heavy hitters. You know, you had the NWO, you had Goldberg, you had, I mean, I was just a guppy in the ocean, let alone a fish in a pond, you know. So, you know, I was just, I was expendable. And that's, you know, that's just part of the business. Very, very true. And you hear a lot of stuff, you know, obviously with a lot of those big backstage names like Hogan and stuff, that you know, a lot of politics, but... What was Bischoff like at that point, you know, as your boss? Was there, was there a lot of interaction with him, at, you know, and you at that point? Only if you were a star. Oh, okay. So. But obviously, you know, you, you, you're a great talent, great wrestler, and obviously somebody, re- you know, recognized you. And obviously just somebody at ECW, you know, wanted you there. Eventually, you know, you'd end up there, and I guess – you know, basically, how did you get into ECW? Was it Paul Heyman recruited you, or who was the person behind getting you down there to ECW? Um, well, about, I'm trying to think, too long after uh, I was let go, I did a tryout match with Taka for WWF, and it was for not for a Monday Night Raw, but one of those Friday night specials, because the Monday night was preempted because of the Westminster Kennel Show. <laughs> yep. So they had, you know, they did the taping and they did it for a Friday night. And uh, when that aired, I guess Paul E. saw it and he had Chris Candido hunt me down. And I guess it took a couple weeks for Chris to hunt me down, but he found me finally. And uh, it's funny because when I was in WCW, a friend of mine and I, we at 2 o'clock in the morning, we'd always be watching ECW on some obscure channel. And I always swore up and down. I said, that's one company I will never work for because these guys were, you know, there's balls and Sandman trading chair shots. And then they're hitting each other over the head with microwave ovens and super Nintendos and you name it, that the fans would hand them over the rail. (laughs) And uh, so when Candido calls me up, he says, yeah, Polly wants to know if you want to come in and do a couple shots. And I said, all right. I said, here's how much you want. And I said, and one more thing. I said, I don't want some idiot hitting me in the head with a frying pan. <laughs> he says, no, no, no. He says, we got our brawlers and we got our wrestlers. So, And that's how it all started. And uh, it, the first shot was in Waltham, Massachusetts. And it was uh, Chris, 
Bam Bam and uh, Shane Douglas, they picked me up at the airport. And as soon as I got in the car, Chris says to me, by the way, Paul says you're on everything. I was like, wow, I didn't even have to have a trial match or anything. So that's how it all started. And little did I know how many times I'd be hitting the head with that kendo stick and tables I'd go through and, you know. But I realized, you know, the business was changing and evolving. And if you wanted to survive and remain in the business, you had to change and evolve with it. Very, very true. Very well said right there. And with ECW, you know, they kind of, I wouldn't say evolved a lot, but they evolved a little bit where, you know, you would see, um, you know, some good wrestling in there mixed in. I mean, they always had a couple of good wrestlers here and there, but when they put you and then they put you against Justin Incredible, who's also a great worker and a really, really good friend of the show, you know, and we always talk about you and how great of a chemistry you guys had and a great feud. And Heyman kind of must have saw something in you guys and kind of put you guys right in there together. And you guys, you know, basically started that great run, that great feud, almost right from the beginning. Can you just talk about the chemistry you had with Justin Incredible and that feud? Because just looking back, you guys, like, never had a bad match, and it just seemed to gel so perfectly together. Well, uh, when I went through camp, Brad Ringens told me the secret to having a great match every time. He said, if you and your opponent try to make each other look like a million bucks, you'll have a great match every time. And Justin was that way. And he was such a good heel. He would even get the heel fans to hate him. And and that made it even easier, too. I've always said, when I do seminars and stuff, I'll tell the guys, they'll say, one heel with so much heat, with great heat, is worth more than a dozen baby faces. And that's hard to come by. Because you have so many guys out there now who think they're heels, but they still want to go out and pop the crowd. And that's not your job as a heel. Your job is to get every single person in that building that hates your guts and want to see you get your butt kicked. And Justin was so good at that. And like I said, when we went out there, tried to make each other look like a million bucks. And you always have a great match if you do that. And so when you work with someone who's right away, well, I want to do this and I want to do that and I want to do that, and they, all they care about is themselves – you just know, oh, this match isn't going to be good at all. Or it'll be like pulling teeth trying to get a good match out of that. So Justin, you know, just like the name says, he was incredible. He was a great heel. It's funny. You go back and you watch those matches. I mean, you guys had so many matches. I mean, the best of series and, you know, pay-per-view matches and, and the house show matches that you can get on, like, our video and stuff, and you can see them on YouTube. It's just crazy. You guys, honestly, you guys never had a bad match, and it was just the instant chemistry from the beginning. Did you, you know, did you know him beforehand, or had you ever wrestled him before? Was it the first time in ECW? No, we each had a... The first time we wrestled each other was both our debuts at the ECW Arena in Philly. And, but like I said... um, Neither one of us was selfish, and if you just if you both go out there and just worry about shining each other up, it'll always be great. And obviously, you know, uh, the, the feud is legendary, and it's one of those things you just keep remembering over and over. You know, you just those classic matchups, uh, almost like a Flyer Steamboat or like a Masawa Kawada, where you just remember great matchups. And then another great feud you had in ECW. I mean, you had a, a ton of them. I'm obviously. Uh, one that is also remembered by many people, and you kind of alluded to a little bit before you talked about him, 
and that was Rob Van Dam. What was it like, you know, shooting with RVD at that point? Because she was one of the most over guys, uh, obviously in the company, but he's one of the most over guys in wrestling at that point. Um, I don't know. I guess, you know, I always go out trying to have a good match, you know, no matter who I work with. And so, you know, in the first time we wrestled, it clicked, and Paul, must have saw something in it too because after that we were married for a year or two. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so, and, you know, and it was, you know, and Rob is, such a gifted athlete, you know, he can do just about anything. So, you know, we would, I guess, we were always challenging ourselves too and trying to make it fun for ourselves. And um, I guess we just wanted to give the people something they hadn't seen before. And one thing that we, um, you know, I guess one thing I was glad that we accomplished was most of the time when you have, uh, two good guys wrestling each other in a match, it's hard to get the fans involved or to even care. And I I think that's one thing that made our feud great was here we were two good guys and we really got the fans into it. No doubt about that. And that was really cool. It's almost like uh, they kind of did it with uh, Eddie and Dean a little bit back in ECW as well with the two faces. And it's kind of like always getting the respect of the crowd, you know, as the match goes on and on. And they're like, you know, they're just loving the – just the pure athleticism of you guys and, you know, just the great chemistry you and RVD had, but it was also cool when you kind of, uh, you know, turned heel a little bit and became the new effing show when it was a new uh, part of Jerry Lynn that we hadn't seen in ECW before. Was it easy for you to, you know, become the new effing show and turn heel? Oh, I was I was excited to do it. I wish the company wouldn't have folded because, you know, we were just getting started and it was it was a lot of fun working with Cyrus, too. And uh, and I always said if I ever turned heel, I hoped I could do it as good as Justin. So it was it was a goal, you know, I wanted to accomplish because I think it's very important to learn both sides, not just the baby face, but the heel also. And so I was really looking forward to it and wanted to have some fun with it. And I wish, you know, the company didn't fold before we could have got things really rolling. And, you know, Rob was so over, it would have been so easy to get heat and be a heat with him. That makes the job even easier. Absolutely. It's definitely, definitely true. And, you know, obviously you can name the, the ton of matches you guys had that were just, uh, you know, just amazing matches and, uh, you know, five-star matches that you guys put on together. But, you know, eventually, you know, you said ECW would close and, you know, you, you know, you kind of wish it would stay on, but, before that, you were the ECW champion. What was it like when, you know, they kind of, uh, you know, christened you the face of ECW at one point and they gave you the world title belt? I don't know. You know, I guess it was, you know, I don't know. I guess I like to think that it was bumped me up to that next level. And I don't know. I, I guess I, I'd like to think that it was, you know, to bump me up to that next level because I'd worked so hard. I don't know. Because, you know, it wasn't a long run. I knew I was just a transitional champ, which was fine. You know, I, I don't think I was, you know, I'm the guy who need, who's the face of a company and carries the company on his back. But, um, I get, you know, it was just nice that it bumped, nudged me up to that next level. It's always great from a fan's perspective, though, when a guy you know is, the, you know, one of the best wrestlers, if not 
the best wrestler in the company gets the title and you're thinking, wow, you know, maybe these promoters are pretty smart. Or, you know, maybe Paulie, uh, you know, he, he does, you know, respect that this guy is one of the best wrestlers. So it's kind of a cool thing that, you know, you were able to do that. But were you shocked when ECW actually did close its doors and were bankrupt or did you kind of see it coming? No, we could all see it coming because, you know, every once in a while WCW or WWF would do a talent raid. So Polly was kind of forced to sign guys to better deals even though when the money wasn't there. And, and you know, and we were, it's too bad because we were gaining some momentum. We were, you know, drawing some big houses and stuff, you know, in, in our bigger markets like Chicago and, you know, in New York and all over the place. We were starting to draw bigger houses and run bigger venues, and it's just a shame that, you know, didn't have a, a good TV network that was behind us because, you know, uh, TNN pretty much used this as an experiment to see how wrestling would do on their network. And then, since you know, with little or no promotion we were their number one show so they turned around and offered Vince 110 million to come to their network so we were just a guinea pig that is true and obviously it was kind of cool uh ECW you know put that into the into the tv and you almost made it real where you know Cyrus was with you and you guys were with the, the quote-unquote network and uh you know they were the heel saying you know they, they hated ECW and you know it was kind of a little bit of a shoot between uh you know Paul making Cyrus the network and everything else and uh Obviously, you're well, part of that, but those are the best storylines. Is when you incorporate a true story into it, because then it, you know it, I think it's harder to pull off stuff that's totally fiction and made up. When you throw a little bit of a true story into a storyline, that, that I think that works the best. That's definitely true, and what was kind of cool, you know, at the end of ECW—not cool, but almost like an ironic kind of way that. You versus RVD was kind of like the last main event or one of the last main event programs, and you guys kind of put on the best matches the last couple of years. Did you kind of find that you know a little bit ironic that it was kind of ending on like you kind of alluded to it, it was like such a high note for you, but then it ended on such a sour note? Uh, it was pretty much a sour note. <laughs> I didn't even want to show up for that last thing for you because I heard we weren't getting our whole paycheck and we were already, you know, three months behind in pay. And and uh, that's why I, I even forgot to pack my tights. That's why I was wearing those uh, warm-up pants. It was the, yeah. the, Musketeers, the Musketeers workout pants because I forgot to bring <laughs> my tights because I didn't even want to show up. And, uh, and if you look close, there's actually black electrical tape around my waist holding them up. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know. I'm going to have to look for that. That's pretty funny. But, uh, but uh, you know, I ended up getting my full check for that last week because I wasn't going to work it. Because, you know, enough was enough. But, you know, so then I wasn't in the right frame of mind. So I didn't like the match anyway. I, I, you know, a lot of it was it was just hard. I wasn't in the right state of mind for the match, and it was just bittersweet. And so, so what's your so frame was, of mind? Then? It was a bad ending. Yeah. So what's your frame of mind then when uh, Paul Heyman ends up on uh, Monday Night Raw, basically following the final uh, ECW pay per view? And uh, I know you would you would debut shortly after, but. 
you know, what's your take on the fact that he then just popped up as a color announcer on Monday Night Raw uh, not soon after that last show? Well, you know, I think he was on Vince's payroll the whole time he ran ECW anyway. And then, you know, there was salt rubbed in our wounds anyway because when we were behind in pay and and Polly wasn't showing up at the shows and poor Dreamer's running the show and Polly says he's out in L.A. talking with executives from USA Network and this channel and that channel when actually he was out there filming Rollerball getting an extra payday. So, you know, it was just, it was disappointing because here we all are still showing up for work and we're still half the time not getting our checks. And But, you know, what do you do? You live and you learn. Yeah, and that WWF debut, you know, the elusive light heavyweight title win, which I know I mentioned earlier, and to me, I mean, it's always been something that I'm, you know, very happy to have you on the show to ask you about, and that is that WWF run, which seemed to have a lot of questions, and you mentioned how you were fired when you were injured, but why don't we start at the beginning of that, when you were brought over, I mean, seemingly at that point, it was a great move on their part to get you on the roster, and they give you the light heavyweight title right out of the gate, uh, what was promised to you at first upon entry? Because you were really one of the first ECW guys. Uh, I know uh, Justin Credible had come over, but you were really one of the first post-closing that hit the WWF TV. Well, nothing was promised. You know, it was uh, right before, like after the uh, the tryout match with Taka in WWF. Um, I guess I was, and I've already. Uh, What's the word? I heard about the uh, after I already started and committed with ECW. All of a sudden, I heard that I was going to be in a light heavyweight tournament with WWF, and I said, "Really? Yeah." They said your name's in brackets on TV. I said, "Well, they haven't even called me." And so, you know, I already committed ECW, so I couldn't do the tournament. And I talked, you know, and, and uh. Jim Ross, even when I had the match with Taka, said, well, we can't really promise you anything right now. We're just trying to get this light heavyweight thing off the ground. I said, oh, that's cool. I understand. So when I didn't do the tournament, I talked to Jim Ross had called, wondering what happened. I explained to him, well, I, I've already committed, you know, and no one had contacted me about the tournament. He understood. You know, he was cool about it. He said, well, just, you know, when you're done with ECW, I just want to let you know you have an open door here. So when ECW folded, I uh, I called Jim Ross, and they just happened to be uh, coming to uh, Minneapolis. So I went down and talked to him, and Jim is the one who signed me. So, and, but what I didn't, you know, nothing was promised or anything. I was just happy to be there. You know, it took me 12 and a half years to finally get there, and I got there. But uh, I guess I did a couple house shows out east with uh, S.A. Rios, and then all of a sudden, I get a call saying, uh, can you be in Chicago this weekend? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm under contract, sure, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't find out until I get to the building. They go, uh, you're working Crash Holly and you're getting a strap tonight. And I'm like, okay. And they go, and you're a heel. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I a heel? I said, you know, I'm thinking I've been a baby face most of my career. Chicago, and this was in Chicago. Chicago is one of our big, you know, shots for ECW. And even before, 
years before, I would drive from Minneapolis to did a lot of indies in Chicago. And uh, I, I just thought, this doesn't make any sense. If you want me to be a heel, let me go out and do something to Jeff Hardy or some instant heel, you know? So it, none of it made sense to me. I didn't understand it. I didn't know if it was an attitude check or what the deal was, because you never know in this business. Which, you know, and so I... uh cheated, grabbed his tights, pinned him on the title, and the crowd still popped. Paulie <laughs> says to me when I get to the back, the office is really surprised about how the re- what kind of a reaction you got. I said, why? I said, this was one of our big shots in ECW. and you know, So it, I don't think they knew what to do with me anyway. You know, I don't even think Creative knew who I was to begin with because when I initially called Jim Ross, about going there, he said I needed to send the tape to Creative. I said, "Really?" I said, "I've been wrestling twelve years." He says, "Well, uh, you know, the guys in Creative don't know who you are." I'm like, "All right, fine." So yeah, I don't think they knew. And you know, once again, it was bad timing because you had all the heavy hitters. You had you know the Rock, Stone Cold, Triple H, uh, Mick Foley. I mean, Undertaker. I mean. So once again, I was just a guppy in the ocean. And then um, six months, you know, so after when I had the belt, I think I only did uh, one Raw and two Smackdowns. And then after that, it was just doing the jacked and heat tapings. And then after that, it was just having dark matches with guys getting tryouts. And I thought, this is what you hired me for? And about six months in, in one of them dark matches, I got hurt and needed knee surgery. And, you know, so the doctor said I'd be out six months. And about three months after my surgery, Johnny Ace calls up and says, you ready to go? And I said, no, the doctor said six months. And a week later, I got my walking papers in the mail. So it was, uh, you know, it was just a, it was, it was a disappointment. It's a telling story. I mean, you know, it's it's from a, our perspective, you know, I had so much on paper to see, you know, Jerry Lynn's in the WWF. Finally, you know, and you get the strap and, you know, you're, you got some you know, pretty decent matches, like you said, before they hit you on the jacked and metal tapings. But, you know, one thing that stands out is the infamous promo, uh, one of the pay-per-views, I, I believe, I don't know if it was Backlash or Judgment Day, where you're the light heavyweight champion and you're at WWF New York, and they go to WWF New York and they ask, uh, you know, how are you enjoying tonight watching the action with the fans at WWF New York? Now, what follows? Was it a shoot or was that something that you were instructed to do? No, Paulie gave me that promo word for word. Now, who knows? Maybe on his part it was a shoot. Maybe no one else knew it was coming. But uh, the next night uh, at Raw, Linda McMahon said, I saw your your promo. I really enjoyed it. I said, well, thank you. So as far as I know, I didn't have any heat for it. And I just did what I was told, you know. Absolutely excellent, excellent promo. And if anybody's never seen it, go see it. Because at that time, you know, in 2001, you had two companies just closed. This was before the invasion. You're dying for something different. And when that happened, you're like, wow, man, like where is this going to go from here? 
and it really didn't go anywhere. And soon after, no. like you said, you got you got hurt. Uh, and then well, they did the interview. even before that, I could see the writing on the wall before that because they had me. They had RVD and I wrestle on a heat, and initially they I think we had five and a half minutes for the match, and we went to Paul and we said, "What's the deal?" They only give us five and a half minutes, so he went to someone and got us like an extra four minutes. Well, after the match aired, I saw, I go, wait a minute, how did we get from there to here? And here they had edited out like three minutes of my offense, so I could see the writing on the wall then. It was just to showcase Rob, you know. Wow. That's uh, you know that's absolutely that's indicative of what they were doing at that time with those international shows because they really could manipulate how you know somebody came off whether it was a crowd response or like you said your offense. But now when the invasion started, were you still active or were you on the injured list at that point? No, I was still active. So you, they were not using you as part of the invasion. You were still technically with the, the WWE umbrella. See, I don't think that, that makes so little oh, yeah. sense to me because it, it, could have put, it could have put you in such uh, a, a different light. You know, that's unbelievable. I think, you know, once again, I think that was uh, creative, didn't know who I was or what to do with me. And as far as the invasion angle, I didn't, I don't think I would have wanted to be a part of it anyway because uh, it never was going to work because Vince was never going to let a different company go over on WWE guys. So it was never going to work to begin with, which is a shame because it could have been big. But it was just an opportunity to bury the other two companies, you know. Oh, it could have been huge. And you look at that roster even before the invasion. Then a few months down the road after ECW closed, you started to see guys, you know, sprinkled in a little bit. Uh, here and there, but did you like seeing some of those ECW guys, uh, in addition to yourself, getting that shot with the company, whether it be, you know, under the right circumstances or not? Oh, you know, I'm happy for anyone who gets there, you know, because, you know, when you, I mean, when you break into this business, there are so little job openings compared to the amount of people trying to get those jobs. You know, and even Brad told us the first day of camp, he said, don't get into this thinking you're going to be a big superstar and a multimillionaire because it's not going to happen. So at least he was, you know, upfront and honest with us and didn't fill us with a bunch of false hopes or anything, you know. Right. So I'm happy for anyone who makes it there because, you know, chances are you're not going to. Yeah, and even now more so than ever because of obviously, you know, now a mass control over uh, a developmental system. Um, but, you know, actually we forgot to really touch on this before. I didn't know if we would find a good spot for it. But, you know, at the beginning of your career you did some enhancement work uh, very early in your career. But, uh, you know, if you find those wrestling challenge tapings, you might see Rick Martel versus Jerry Lynn. How was that at that point so early in your career to get uh, into a WWF taping and work with some of those veterans like you did? Well, actually, before I did those, I did uh, I did squash matches for the AWA too. Oh, all right, so, wow. Yeah, I did some quite a few TV tapings for them, and then uh, one of the guys I went to camp camp with, Tom Burton, uh, when they were doing TV tapings at the Mayo Civic Center in Rochester, 
we would pick up the ring, bring it there, set it up, you know, do two, three squash matches, tear down the ring, and bring it back. And then uh, there's one time they ran, AWA ran a house show up in Alexandria, Minnesota. It's about two and a half, two, two and a half hours north of Minneapolis. And so we brought the ring up, set it up. Well, then I find out right <laughs> our, right before the show that they want, they need a ref, an extra ref. And I'd never ref, and they wanted to use me. And I, I said, okay. And I was, I had to ref uh, Wendy Richter and Judy Martin. And I was scared to death. I'd never ref a match. But Judy said, just listen, I'll talk you all the way through it. And it was amazing. I learned so much just that one match, refing and listening to Judy. It was incredible. Um, she just taught you how to get mileage out of little or nothing. And I'll make it the beginning. She said she came to the ring with a ring jacket. And she says, uh, tell me to take my jacket off. And I did, and she wouldn't. And she said, keep asking me. And I didn't. Finally, she goes, start counting. I start counting, and she scrambled just spastically. trying. She couldn't get that jacket off fast enough, and the place just popped. It was amazing. And I learned so much just from that. And then after I left, uh, I wrestled a match against Tom, the guy I went through camp with. And then we tore down the ring and brought it back. So I did, you know, I paid my dues. And then finally, I don't even, oh, Eddie, I think, hooked us up with squash matches for WWF. I did a few of those. And uh, I'll never forget the first time I went. I got in the locker room, and there's the big boss man. No, not big boss man. One man gang. Now, here is Mohawk, tattoos on the side of his head. And he's a big boy, too. He must be like 6'6", six, 6'8". Six, six, and he's wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt playing with a yo-yo. <laughs> and standing in line waiting to play with that yo-yo is Rick Rude and Kurt Henning. Because, you know, back then, there was no cell phones. There was no, you know, there probably weren't even any disc mans or anything, you know. So those days at the building were long. So... It was funny watching them play with this yo-yo and people are waiting to have a chance to play with that yo-yo. And I just sat there thinking if the fans could only see this. And then uh, <laughs> I was amazed at how big the one-man gang was. And then while in walks uh, Earthquake and Typhoon, and uh, John Tenta is huge. Man, these guys are big. And then in walks Big John Stud, And he was bigger than those guys. And then after that, who walks in? Andre the Giant. And, oh, my God, he's TV. You know, everyone says TV makes you look bigger. TV didn't do Andre justice. He looked like a moving building. It was incredible. But I was just in such awe of all these guys, you know. And my first match was a tag against uh, Big Boss Man and Akeem when they were the Twin Towers. And uh, it it was pretty amazing. It was, you know... Uh, I couldn't believe I was there. I had to keep pinching myself. Now, obviously, you know, in the WWF, those were the dark matches. You know, that was uh, the late 80s, uh, early 90s there. But uh, several years down the road where you, you know, you're not working dark matches anymore, basically, you're going to start... Well, actually, those tapings then, they weren't 
I, they weren't even called dark matches because what you had back then at those TV tapings, you had like 34 squash matches in a row. It was like an assembly <laughs> line. As the jobber and the referee were coming back, you'd pass the <laughs> that referee and jobber coming back as you were going to the ring for the next one. It was like an assembly line. Just move them in, move them out. Because you had a lot of matches you had to get in. And I think maybe at the end of the night, they'd have one match where it was, you know, a couple of the stars working each other just so the people would stay because it was a lot of squash matches you had to sit through then. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. And uh, kind of the staple back then was those enhancement, you know, those jobber matches. But um, I was going to say, if I could, you know, fast forward to when, you know, you're not doing those those jobber matches anymore, those enhancement matches anymore, you're basically going to become the main event and you're basically going to become, you know, one of the faces of a new division. And that was with TNA, with Jeff and Jerry Jarrett. You know, they start up in about uh, June of 2002. And, you know, you're going to be, along with AJ Styles, Loki, and Christopher Daniels, you guys are going to be the new face of this quote-unquote X division. What were your thoughts going into TNA and working for Jeff and Jerry Jarrett? Oh, it was exciting to, you know, start with something from the, you know, from the ground up right on day one because you never know where it's going to lead to. So I was really looking forward to it. Plus it was, you know, Nashville, the old stomping grounds from Memphis. So it was had a little nostalgia to it too. Now, when it started, did you, you know, did you have any reservations about, you know, how it was going to be like Wednesday night pay-per-views? It wasn't going to be traditional TV. You know, what were your thoughts on how TNA was being run at first? Um, at first, it was exciting because, uh, like in my feud with AJ, and what, one thing I've, I don't like about wrestling is two guys in the ring with a microphone talking for 20 minutes. It's just, I mean, I've always been a fan. I'm still a fan, but I want to see some action. And what I liked was with AJ and I, we would continue our feud with the, you know, backstage stuff. Like one time we, one of us jumped the other one at catering and we're flying over tables and chairs and brawling. And then another time I, there was this uh, little restaurant called the White Trash Cafe that we'd, uh, for a while there, they were catering for us and we shot a, vignette there where AJ was coming out of there and I jumped him and left him laying. So I liked uh, continuing angles that way. It reminded me of the old NWA with like the Four Horsemen and Dusty when they followed him into the TV studio's parking lot and jumped him when he got out of his truck. Stuff like that is exciting to me instead of just standing there, two guys with a microphone trying to, you know, out funny each other with their deaf comedy jam. Hmm. Definitely, and uh, you know, you're talking about you and AJ. I was going to get into that because it seems like everywhere you go, you always had that one or two guys where you know you just get in the ring. And it's like, man, Lynn, you know, Jerry Lynn's done it again, another you know amazing feud. And you kind of put obviously AJ's one of the best wrestlers in the world right now. Then you kind of put him on the map. What were your thoughts of a young AJ? As you know, you were he gives you supreme credit. He said, you know, you're one of the guys that obviously put him on the map and you gave him so much knowledge and helped him so much in his career. But what did you think of AJ? And did you foresee him, you know, being the, you know, the awesome international superstar that he is today? Well, I knew that, you know, he was slated to be their, you know, poster boy and stuff. And I knew I was there to try and 
you know, teach them whatever I could and, you know, uh, what, you know, and uh, when I saw and experienced firsthand the things he could do, uh, AJ even said it. He says, I'm your new RVD, aren't I? And I said, yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) He even joked about it. So, but, you know, it was another thing where, you know, we just went out there and and he wasn't selfish again. Like I said, he, we just go out there and try and make each other look like a million bucks and, and uh, you know, come up with something new and give the people something they hadn't seen before. And obviously, you know, you, you guys become tag champs at one point. Obviously, you become ex-division champ a few times. But what was it like, you know, getting that kind of recognition as far as, the X Division and stuff, because it wasn't like the NWA title was always the main event. It seemed like the X Division was the focus on the show, and, you know, all throughout the internet, as it was, you know, starting to build up steam at that point was, oh, you got to check out the X Division, and that was kind of how TNA, you know, made its name and put itself on the map, was with you and AJ, and like Loki and Daniels, all you know, too, and, a, and maybe, you know, a couple of the other guys, but it was mainly, you know, you, you guys were the core four there, and even Psychosis towards the beginning, but what was it like being like the main draw for them? Oh, you know, I just, I just wanted to, uh, you know, just do a good job. And if the X division was, you know, garnering a lot of attention for the company, great. Because then, you know, uh, it's all a team effort. You know, and we wanted to make the company successful, so we all could have jobs and make money. And then uh, I remember. You know, eventually in TNA, um, you know, down the road, you would end up working with RVD again at one point. It was kind of like rekindling that old feud. And I remember also working with uh, Sean Waltman again in TNA. You, you know, you kind of had a few matches there as well. But what was it like, you know, bringing, when TNA was bringing in some of those guys and you were able to rekindle some of those feuds? Was it just like stepping back in with them, you know, all those years prior? Oh, yeah. Sean, it was like riding a bike. You know, well, same with Rob, because, you know, I'd wrestled both of them so many times, and uh, and uh, it was exciting, you know, that they were going to rekindle the feud with me and Sean, but I he had some problems, and no show to TV tape, and that was the end of that. So, <laughs> but um, with Rob, I think it was just... Uh, I don't know. I don't know why they did it. I, maybe someone just wanted to uh, uh, have a little nostalgia and take a look back in time. I don't know, because you know I wasn't under contract and they weren't going to sign me to a contract. So it was just a short. You know, initially it was supposed to be just for the one pay per view. Well, then uh, um, Eric Bischoff saw the match and loved it, and Vince Russo too. And they said, "Look, we got to put this on TV." So we were supposed to do a little two or three month run and build up to Bound for Glory. Well, I don't know what happened. It it didn't go as planned. We were supposed to work a paper before that and they scratched us and I don't know. I don't know what the deal was. So it just ended up you know, the whole Bound for Glory thing was just because it was in Philly, I think. And you know, and it was a uh what, uh Metal Mayhem match. So basically, it was a, a TLC match with nothing to climb a ladder for. You know, there was no belts, no contract, nothing. So it was just thrown in there just for some ECD, ECW nostalgia. 
And, you know, eventually in 2013, obviously part of your retirement tour uh, within TNA, I believe it was your final match ever in TNA, kind of, you know, going full circle with RVD. You had a match with him, you know, part of that quote-unquote retirement tour. Was that, uh, you know, something that you wanted to do, get him, you know, one last match with RVD? Um, I guess I hadn't thought about it, but they had called me up out of the clear blue since I was calling her quits and asked me if I want to wrestle Rob one more time. And I said, sure. And I, I'm kind of glad that they did because I didn't like the, the, the Monday night or the month, the middle mayhem match. I, it, there was a lot of stuff going on that night. Rob and I weren't happy and you know a lot of politics going on and stuff with our time and with what we could and couldn't do in the ring. Like it was a TLC match, but we weren't allowed to use a table. So there's just a lot of stuff going on that, that night that so our match just because of all the politics and stuff it just ended up not gelling and uh so i'm glad we got to do it one more time because then you know it was a better match and it was you know it was good to end it off on a better note for sure definitely and it was kind of a good way to you know and your career against one of the guys you had one of your best feuds with as well. So it's kind of a good little, uh, you know, full circle moment there for you for sure. But, you know, one thing that I was dying to mention to you was uh, your run with Ring of Honor. I mean, this is the fast forwarding a little bit, or actually we're kind of skipping around a little bit here, but you made your run in Ring of Honor. And I wanted to ask, what was it like with ROH, winning the, the ROH world title, you know, being where you were and how kind of you came all the way through, and you're kind of the veteran of Ring of Honor, but you beat Nigel McGinnis for the title, and it was kind of a shocking moment, because I, I know I didn't see it coming. But what did you think about, uh, you know, entering Ring of Honor, your thoughts on ROH, and then winning the world title against Nigel McGinnis? Well, you know, I've always tried to create new goals as I've gone along, and I try not to set the goals too high. I wanted them to be realistic to achieve and stuff, and at that time, you know, it was it was nice that they wanted to start using me because it, you know, I had been everywhere. Where else was there to go? And I'd, I'd done a couple shots for Ring of Honor in the past, but, you know, nothing at, on a regular basis. So, you know, it helped, uh, you know, it lit a fire on my, under my butt again. And, and I've always been my own worst critic. So it was a really, you know, and Ring of Honor, they've always, you know, had, incredible athletes on their roster and so it was you know it was a challenge to be able to keep up with them you know and a lot of them were you know 20 years younger than me <laughs> so <laughs> so it was a real challenge and uh and uh i enjoyed it and had fun with it and you know and i know i a lot of the fans gave me flack because especially when they put the belt on me because Ring of Honor is known for being for younger up and coming guys and not someone who's, you know, been around as long as me. But um you know, when they decided to do that, I knew I really had to uh had to really keep up and and it was rough too because you're on last and you know, in the first two or three matches those fans have seen everything. So it was, it was, you know, you really had to go out there and and uh, kill it, you know, and and I, I that run probably did take a few years off my career because 
I knew I had to keep up with them, and the bar had been raised so high as to what it took to win a match there. I mean, here you got guys bumping on the apron and stuff when you're, you know, you're talk going when you're going through camp and getting trained and bumping, you know, in the middle of the ring in the sweet spots, you know. And here we are bumping on the apron and stuff, and it's just the bar was raised so high, and it, you know, it wasn't easy, but you know, I'm, you know, for my age. And what my body had already been through, I, I'm proud of what I did there. For sure, you had an awesome run. I mean, I can think of a, a bunch of great matches, but you know that Supercard of Honor show, which obviously was one of their biggest shows, and Nigel had been champ for like basically over a year at that point. I mean, uh, possibly even longer. I'm trying to remember how many days he was champ, but it was it seemed like he was champ for over a year for sure. And it was there's a surprise, you know, that uh, you know they pulled the trigger and they gave you the title, but it was kind of awesome and it's kind of cool that you know they're actually uh giving someone of your stature the world title because like you said they usually gave it to young guys so it was cool to see them change it up a little bit and and i loved working with nigel he's one of my favorites to work with so and i uh you know and he had both his biceps were tore in that match and stuff and so i i was you know i prided myself in not hurting him that match i think the only thing that I heard him was when he closed mine me from the apron and he hooked his one arm on the rope and <laughs> hurt himself. But <laughs> I was glad it wasn't me that hurt him. So Now, I mean, obviously, like, you can name a couple awesome guys that you look at today and you're like, wow, you know, look, look, look what the, you know, these guys became. I mean, you mentioned Nigel, who was injured to a point, but still having awesome matches, and he was one of the best. And, you know, what a great worker he was. But, Brian Danielson, I remember you guys had an awesome match in Philly, and you guys had some other awesome matches in Ring of Honor, but obviously, you know, a lot of fans know him as Daniel Bryan, but what did you think of him at that point? Did you, uh, you know, obviously he's super talented, but did you see him, um, you know, becoming one of the most over guys in the history of uh, WWF at one point, or WWE? What? You never know. You never say never. You never know where, you know, I've been in the business that long, there are so many people that I've known before and after they've been to the Fed, you know, and wrestled them. And I actually first wrestled Brian when he was in Memphis Power Pro when that was a developmental territory. Oh, wow. And then, uh, then you know, the couple shots in Ring of Honor. But, yeah, it was – I was I was actually psyching – you know, Brian was so over in that company and was so good, I was psyching myself out thinking, I can't go with Brian. And when we wrestled, it was awesome. Oh, no doubt about that. I, I remember on one of the ROH DVDs that had the Brian Dennis and uh, one of the you know the compilations they made him. I was rewatching one of those matches and I said, "Man, you know, uh, it was it's just awesome to see a guy that was so good everywhere else like you." And then uh, you know Brian Dennison at that point, who was kind of underrated as far as the rest of the world knowing, and just seeing you guys go together and just awesome chemistry again that you were able to have with another great wrestler. And I also liked wrestling uh, Tyler Black. Yes, Seth Rollins, yes. Yeah, I'd wrestled him quite a few times before Ring of Honor for AAW in Chicago and then uh, some indie shows that uh, him and Merrick Brave would run around the Iowa area and stuff. But uh, I always liked working him because, you know, another guy who's an incredible athlete and can do just about anything. And and uh, I... I, I liked uh, wrestling him, and I think we had a couple. We had a couple good matches in Ring of Honor, and well, like you know, Ring of Honor, they always they have always had incredible athletes there. 
no doubt about it. ROH had such good athletes, and you also had a, a couple awesome matches with Austin Aries, who's you know obviously he's a big name in TNA, but pretty underrated as well. Oh yeah, and you know, and he, I think he broke in. Yeah, he broke in Minnesota, I think, too. So I saw him long years and years ago before he went anywhere. I saw him in West St. Paul working on an indie show. I had just been in town, and I thought, oh, I'll go check it out and visit it. And I saw him for the first time, and he was a good heel. And I I knew, I told him after the match, I said, I really like your heel persona and stuff. And, and I, I knew he was going to go somewhere then. And then, oh, I, I first saw Claudio up in uh, AAW. I think, no, what was it called? I can't remember, it was AAW Hardcore or something like that up in uh, Toronto. I saw him work, I think it was either Sanjay or uh, Shelly. And I thought, why isn't he in New York now? He's incredible. He's the best base in the business, and he's just amazing. He's one of those guys who is strong as an ox, and he, he doesn't even know his strength. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, I was going to mention uh, him. He's kind of been an underrated guy, obviously. You know, maybe not so much more because he's in WB now, but, you know, kind of maybe underutilized or anything. But pure strength, awesome, awesome wrestler, especially dating back to Ring of Honor. But then I was going to say uh, a guy kind of making, you know, a big name for himself in Ring of Honor, especially, you know, now they have Destination America, was uh, Roderick Strong. I remember you guys had some good matches as well. Oh, yeah. we The one that really stands out is in Dayton because he – hard weighed on the rail pretty bad he was bleeding pretty good but it actually ended up helping the match because uh it just you could as soon as the people saw that blood gushing you could just feel the heat rise in the building it just added so much more to the drama and emotion of the match and you know and that was what a lot of the guys and a lot of the fans would call a b show you know but I was proud of that night because for a B-show, by the end of that match, we had the fans thinking I was dropping the title that night. And that, that's a good feeling when you know you've got them and they're biting. Yes, uh, pretty cool, uh, you know, pretty cool moment when you're able to, uh, not to like, trick the fans, but, you know, you're able to uh, make them suspend disbelief for a period of time where they, they think one thing for sure is going to happen, and then, boom, Roy gets pulled out from under him. It's just a great feeling for sure. And I do remember thinking that you were going to drop the title a few times in Ring of Honor. Yeah, and that's the object of the business is suspend the belief, you know. And uh, and and that's one thing I I hate is when everything's so telegraphed and everyone – and, you know, and word leaks out and everyone knows what's going to happen ahead of time. I don't want to know what's going to happen ahead of time. You know, even when I watch now, I don't want to know. It's like even if someone taping and someone knows what happened, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I want to be surprised. Do you still watch today or are you not, not so much anymore? Um, Not so much. I mean, here and there I do. You know, I'll watch Ring of Honor and then uh, if there's something, you know, something interesting I want to see, I'll try and hunt it down. But if I... You know, what I mostly do now is I get on YouTube and watch old NWA, you know, the Horsemen and and Flair and all that, or watch, you know, some world-class with the Von Erich Freebird feud and stuff and, you know, Rock and Roll Express. And 
I just love that era because, uh, and I'll tell guys in seminars, I'll say, you want to learn how to work? Watch wrestling from the 70s and 80s. And I go, yeah, but it's so boring. I go, but the people believed it was real. And there was so much electricity in the building and stuff. Watch what they're doing in the ring. And that's what made the people believe it was real. And I, I tell them, I said, you know why the people thought believed it was real? Because you had two guys in the ring selling their butts off for each other. They weren't worried about getting their stuff in. They were worried about selling for each other and making the people believe. That's so true and, and so telling of today where it's kind of more uh, bang, 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 move, 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 go, go, go. And a lot of the, you know, the old timers uh, and, you know, the veterans, if you will, you know, have a problem with the lack of selling. Well, yeah. I, if anyone asks me advice, whether I've seen their match or not, I say, yeah, sell more. <laughs> because I'm, you know, and everything I preach, I'm guilty of. Every single thing. When I do seminars, I'll tell them that right off the bat. Everything I'm preaching to you, I am guilty of. And, yeah, just sell more. It's so funny. Cause I was and you know what? I've said, I've said, too, I'm sorry. You don't see a lot of wrestling matches anymore. What you see are stunt exhibitions. Huh. Hey, I, I can't argue that. It's very true. It's kind of weird where, you know, the business has gone, where, you know, the believability of, of the wrestling match and the believability of the moves almost, you know, it almost does seem like a big stunt show out there. Well, here's the sad thing. The moves are more devastating and dangerous than ever, but, I mean... You know, WWE. It's not even world wrest. It's not, it's world wrestling entertainment. You're not a wrestler. You're a sports entertainer. So you're telling everyone it's fake, but it's it's more dangerous than ever now, and it <laughs> you're doing more damage to your body than ever now. But everyone thinks it's all fake. And years ago, when you didn't have to, you know, do a shooting star press to the floor, everyone thought it was real. So true, and it's so funny what you're saying right now because uh, you know I talked my buddy uh, Justin TJ uh, Justin Incredible. We were talking about selling stuff, and we were at a show not too long ago, and it's just weird how it worked out because we're, he was talking about uh, Jake the Snake and Scott Hall, how they would preach selling, selling, selling. It's funny because you and him said the exact same thing about selling, so no wonder you guys had so much good chemistry in the ring because <laughs> you're kind of like piggybacking off of his thoughts of what he told me, and we're watching this indie show. And he's like, and we're watching, he's like, oh, this guy's not selling, he's not selling. And it was this big swerve, and basically uh, one of the faces turned, he joined the heels, and he completely destroyed the face. And then the face ruined the moment. He didn't sell the injury at all, like at all. He ruined the moment and got no reaction from the crowd because he didn't sell it. He got, like, right back up, and he started yelling at the mic. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, look at that. I know. And he was, and then, you know, explain to me, like, he's like, that's not what you're supposed to do in that, in that point. No. It, that's what kills me is everyone thinks they're too tough to sell. Well, I can't sell that. That's not what this is about. This ain't about showing how tough you are because we're all going to lose in the long run. The human body wasn't made for this. And I tell him in my seminars, too, I'm giving you the whole seminar here. Uh, nothing <laughs> gets a baby face. Nothing gets a baby face more over than sympathy. You can do your flippity doo dah all all day long, and if you're not out there selling what's been done to you, the people aren't going to care about you. 
They're not going to care about your well-being because you showed them you're 100%. Why should they get into it and, you know, they'll never get into it and get behind you because, you know, or worry about your well-being because you're not selling it. And everything that was done to you earlier, when you pop right up, you just told the whole building that was all fake because you're perfectly fine. And why should they worry about you? They're not, you know, that's why you don't get a reaction. Hmm. And it was so funny as we're sitting there, he goes, watch. Uh, in case the guy got right back up, and then he goes, "Watch, he's going to get there's like the crowd's going to be flat." And this was like going into intermission. He goes, "This is horrible. Watch, the crowd literally had no reaction." Because he got right back up after the guy turned on him, and he started yelling at him on the mic. I was like, "Oof." Mm-hmm. Yep, he should have got carried out. You know, it's the same thing when guys they got to kick out it right after three. No, lay there, put the move over. You don't have to kick out. Get pinned and just lay there and get the move over. They're so worried. Oh, I don't want to look bad. It's not about looking bad. Oh, going to get me all fired up now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever think of, you know, maybe becoming a road agent or producer? Because obviously you have so much knowledge, there's so much to give, and you, know, you still have so much passion towards what these guys should be doing for the business. Do you ever think about going that route? I just, I, you know, I don't want to be on the road full-time anymore you know i miss seeing my first daughter grow up half her life i don't want to do it with the second one that you know i want to have a family life now and it's it's tough juggling you know full-time on the road and you you sacrifice a lot of things you miss out on a lot of things so you know i don't know i really just don't want to be on the road full-time but you never know. I pop up in the strangest places. Who knows <laughs> if they'd be interested in hiring me as a trainer at the new facility in Orlando? I wouldn't mind that because then you could just get up and go to work every day. Same, you know, just like having a regular job. You wouldn't have to be on the road full time. Have you ever, you know, got any feelers or has ever, anybody from WWE actually reached out to you, you know, about the performance center? Because obviously, you know, if you were one of the trainers, I mean, that would be a smart move on their part. Well, I've put out some feelers, but, you know, right now they'll give you a tryout for a week, have you go down there for a week. But now, you know, with my regular job, I'd have to use, you know, a week of vacation to do it. But so I don't know. We'll see this in, this next year. If, you know, if I get bit by the bug, we'll see. Did you ever get a chance to, uh, I know there's a lot of videos and stuff of it online and they, you know, constantly showing it on the network, but have you got a chance to see the uh, performance center down there in Orlando? No, I haven't. But I crazy. hear it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, the, and the amount of uh, backstage like footage that they actually show of the place is crazy because it's, and they're doing tours of it now and stuff too. It's just crazy how nice it is and how, you know, it's like a, an NFL facility, you know, on steroids, so to speak. Oh, wow. Wish I had that when I broke in. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely different. <laughs> now, obviously, you know, uh, you wrestled uh, for exactly 25 years, and, and, you know, you obviously had a legendary career, but as we wind it down here, I know you had some memorable, memorable feuds. I mean, off the top of my head, obviously, just incredible, RVD. Uh, Sean Waltman sticks out, AJ Styles. But do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple favorite matches that you've had in your career? Oh, boy, that's tough. I mean, I've always enjoyed wrestling Lance Storm. 
Um, I'm trying to think of the different companies. There's uh, a lot of them. Uh, when people ask me, are you ever going to write a book? I say, well, I need about two dozen people to help re- help me remember things. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's a tough, I mean, boy. I guess, you know what really brings out the best memories is when you have those times where, like, um, it's hard to describe. It's like it's the wrestler's drug. You have a match, and all the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. And at the right time, you can make the people go, yeah, ooh, yeah, ooh. And you take them on this emotional roller coaster ride. And then on the finish, it's just incredible. Whether it be they're blowing the roof off the place for that baby face or they're booing that heel off the building. It's nights like that where everything falls into place and you get back in the locker room and you sit down and you think, and it's one of those nights where you can't get to sleep till 5.30 in the morning because it's just amazing when you have every single person in that building's emotions in the palm of your hand and you control them and make them do what you want and take them on that ride and it's just an incredible feeling, and there's nothing like it. And that's what keeps you going. But, you know, since the business has been exposed, those nights are, you know, very far and few in between and harder to get. But uh, it's when you make the people believe. That's what brings out the most, the best memories. Like uh, uh, Sean, when he's a one, two, three kid, I love this story. This night, um, there was a wrestler in Minneapolis named Tommy Ferrara, and he was a Vietnam War vet, and he had like three Purple Hearts. He'd been shot up and stuff. I mean, he was a hero, and he did a lot of charity work for children and stuff. And this was in February in Minneapolis. It was middle of winter, freezing. Well, it was near Valentine's Day, and these kids, he had done this charity work for at some hospital made this giant valentine for him and they were presenting it to him at intermission and we were scheduled to be in a tag match with Tommy and Horace the Psychopath well at intermission when they're presenting him with this valentine Sean and I come charging in through the back door with winter coats on and ski masks and we jump Tommy and as I'm throwing this rope over the rafters Sean is tearing up this valentine that these kids made for him. And at the time, we had some heel fans. Well, that night, we even turned the heel fans on us. And it was scary because this place was standing room only and no security. And you could hear people yelling at us, you've gone too far. I mean, I was getting worried. And anyway, so I throw this rope over the rafters and we proceed to hang Tommy. And... Of course, Horace runs in and whatever, and we skedaddle. But a night like that, when you can get so much heat and turn the heel fans on you, then you knew you did your job, and it's just a great feeling. And then, you know, and then there's um, Southern Minnesota. 
went to do a small show at some, uh, I think it was just like a grade school gymnasium. It wasn't even a big place. And I got to the building early. I, you know, I always do. And me and another guy, I get out of the car, we pop the trunk, and these three little boys come up to us. And they ask us, uh, are you wrestlers? And I said, yeah. And they said, are uh, you going to win tonight? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm going to give it my best shot. And they go, oh, come on. You know if you're going to win or not. And I said, I'll tell you what. I want you to watch my match. And after the show, based on my match only, I want you to come up to me and find me and tell me if you think wrestling's real or not. And after the show, they came and hunted me down. And I said, so, what do you think? They go, and they had their eyes were big. <laughs> and they said, you showed us wrestling's real. And I said, <laughs> was just a great feeling. I thought, I did my job. And when you, and I'm trying to think, uh, I think I did, uh, there was a, oh, I can't even remember the name of the company. I think I worked, um, the Pope, Elijah, is that his name? Elijah. Yes, 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 Elijah. I wrestled him, and we did a thing where I hurt my knee. And he uh, came out the ring and tried to grab me and pick me up, and I shoved him off me, and I just screamed at him. I said, get the... And I try not to cuss much, but I just wanted the realism. The F off me, and the whole crowd just hushed. It was... Anyway, and that night afterwards, there was an elderly gentleman, probably in his late 50s, he came up to me and he said, I just want to thank you for suspending my belief tonight. And I thought, you know, it's moments like that that really, you know, stand out when you just make them believe. There's not a feeling like it in the world. Oh, no doubt about it. And it's awesome from a fan's perspective, you know, especially with you, to go back there, you know, you, you pop in some old DVDs or something, and you're like, you know what, let's put on the Jerry Lynn match, because you know that you're always going to have a good match, and it's most likely going to be the best match in the show, and there's, you know, a couple guys that, you know, you just put you in the ring with, and it's just absolute gold, but i got to ask you, who would your favorite opponent be? I know there's RVD, and there's Credible, and there's Waltman, but, and even AJ Styles, maybe, but do you have a favorite maybe you can uh, narrow it down to? I've always said this in Q&As when I get this question, and I always say, anyone that doesn't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> I to tell you the truth, I, I can't nail one favorite because there's so many favorites for different reasons. You know, like the ones you named, uh, even Chris Brad Candido. Armstrong. You know, there's, yeah, Brad Armstrong. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of them. You know, I guess it's it's mostly guys who aren't selfish and realize that there's two of us out there and we're working together, you know? Definitely true. And, uh, you know, you definitely made a lot of guys look better by not being selfish. And obviously, you know, it, and it goes both ways, but it's just, you know, amazing to see that. But I was always very curious with one move that you did in particular. Obviously, you kind of, I guess, I'm not sure if you invented it or not, but it seems like you invented it, but always seemed like you killed the guy because it always seemed like, oh, how, you know, how did how did I protect myself in that move? But the cradle pal driver, where did you come up with that? And did you actually invent that? No. Uh, in ECW, I couldn't think of a finisher. I really never had a finisher, except for maybe in Global, I had the sleeper. But uh, 
I should have stuck with that. I didn't have to pick anyone up. <laughs> but um, I always have a finisher. You don't have to pick someone up. But uh, I asked Nova because he was coming up with all these innovative moves and stuff. And I asked him, I said, can you come up with a finisher for me? And the next day at the building, he says, uh, remember uh, Dynamite Kid in Japan? Remember that cradle pile driver you would do? And I said, yeah. He says, why don't you give that a try? And ever since then, it stuck. But, awesome. you know, that took a toll on me. Because even on my uh, retirement run, my last little, all my retirement matches, I get asked to do it all the time. And I said, I can't. That's why I'm retiring. I can't do it. it. It would do more damage to me than it would do to the guy I'm doing it to. Awesome move, though. I mean, you know, just for the look of it, too. And obviously, we were talking about before with, uh, you know, with ECW and even with ROH, you kind of had to throw a kitchen sink at the guy for the finish, but the cradle towel driver always looked like, you know, that's the ender, you know, that killed it, especially doing to the guys yeah. like AJ and RVD where they go, yeah. basically, they go flat. You know, it's amazing. Well, it is dangerous, and I felt bad and up in Toronto. I think it was Toronto or Montreal. I, uh, it was a really hot building, and we were really sweaty. And I gave it to Nigel, and I slipped, and I knew right away it wasn't good. And I told the ref, I said, go check on him. And he got a bad stinger, and he went to the hospital and got x-rays. And I felt bad, but, you know, he knew. It was it was just, you know, we were it was hot, we were wet, it was slippery. And I think all the years of doing it, I've only had four close calls. But, you know, I feel bad because I'd even tell the guys, you know, well, how I need them to be when I give it, you know, before the show when I give it to them because I don't want anyone to get hurt and I don't want to hurt them. I couldn't live with myself if I paralyzed someone. But, uh, so, and if I had to, I, I know one time S.A. Rios in TNA, I had to give him like a crappy power bomb on my lap because he took it wrong. So, but I, I didn't want to kill the guy, so I just thought, well, better off looking horrible instead of someone being paralyzed. Right. Absolutely. Now, one question, you know, is very interesting to ask, especially guys of your caliber, because you've wrestled everywhere and you seemingly wrestled almost everybody, you know, but is there ever, you know, a thought in your mind, not to almost like a return match, but almost like a dream match that you could have had in your career. Obviously you retired now, but, uh, you know, back in your career, was ever a guy who was like, man, I always wish I could work with that guy. Eddie Gilbert. Never got to, and he's one of you know brought me into the territories, and I never got a chance to wrestle him. Hmm. Good answer. And yeah, that's a really good one. one. That's a, it's also one you don't really hear that often, so that's uh, that's actually really sweet. Yeah, he was always one of my favorites. He was always very entertaining, and I just thought it would have been fun to wrestle him because he always looked like he was having fun out there. Without a doubt. Now, this has been a lot of fun, of course, but before we uh, before we let you go, this is always a great closer, and it's kind of tough, but, you know, you, you've talked about what you do in the seminars, you've talked about, you know, the advice that you give and the tips and obviously your road, but when you closed the book on your career a couple of years back, you know, and you looked at what everything that you did, what would you feel your legacy would be on the business if you were to explain to somebody what Jerry Lynn accomplished while he was an active professional wrestler. Oh, wow. That's a good question. <laughs> Near the end, I was on a show in uh, 
East Tennessee, just a small hole-in-the-wall place. And I, one of the guys comes up to me and says, uh, so what's your gimmick? He didn't know who I was from Adam, which is fine. It didn't bother me. And I said, well, I said, I, I wrestle. And he goes, no, what's your gimmick? And I go, I wrestle, <laughs> because I really didn't have a gimmick, you know. <laughs> and uh, later on, he comes up to me and he says, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were. And I'm like, I don't care. It don't bother me. I just don't have a gimmick. I just go out there and I wrestle. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what my legacy would be. It, I don't know. You know, I guess uh, no matter where I was on the card, whether it was, you know, I was in a big heated feud or not, if it was just a time filler match, I always tried to come up with something, just something and one thing in that match, even if it was just time filler, to give the fans something to remember just something that would stand out. Like um, the L.A. pay-per-view for ECW when I wrestled Torino. We had just started our feud. It had no really built-up heat or anything, and it was basically time filler match. And I asked Steve, because he was bleeding buckets every night, I said, you know, are you going to bleed? He says, no, Polly just wants us to wrestle. And I was like, crap. He says, Why? I'd come up with this idea. I said, when it's time for my comeback, I said, I want to use your blood for war paint. And I thought, a step further, I thought, well, this is ECW. This is hardcore. I thought, I'll write die in my stomach with your blood. And Steve loved the idea. So he asked Paul, and Paul said, go ahead. And I, you know, so I would do stuff like that. Just if it was an unimportant match, middle of the card, just time to learn, I'd always try and come up with one thing that would give the fans something to remember. So I tried to do that in every match. I'd want to give the fans something to remember. And we thank you for that greatly. And, you know, when you look at, and we get to the plugs, which is the last thing, but, you know, you look at the T-shirt that's on Pro Wrestling Tees, which is the Jerry Lynn tribute shirt, uh, that came out around the time of the GoFundMe campaign, and the words that are on it, which just solidify, I think, every wrestling fan's general consensus of what they think of you, and that is sacrifice, blood, sweat, and tears, giving it your all, an innovator, toughness, heart, and of course my favorite, and that is champion. And Jerry, this has been uh, this has been school right here. This has been sitting down and going to school. This has been a lot of fun, but please. Tell the fans and the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling just exactly where they can find you if they want to, you know, get in touch with you or learn a little bit more about Jerry Lynn. Maybe a seminar or something that's coming up. Um. Oh, well, wow. Let's see. I think um, Ring of Honor called. They want me to do some color commentary coming up for a Jay Lethal match because I think you're setting up. Well, I don't want to give away too much, but anyway. So <laughs> that'll be here in Nashville, and then. Uh, I might be showing up at their uh, final battle pay-per-view in Philly just to do a appearance. And then um, I think in January, I'll be making an appearance at uh, ACW Anarchy Championship Wrestling in Austin at their big anniversary show. And then Minneapolis. I can't remember the name of the company in January, I think. The following weekend, I think the 24th is in Austin. The 29th is in Minneapolis. 
be making an appearance up there and doing a seminar up there. So uh, there's little things here and there. Not a lot. All of a sudden, these just came out of the woodwork. But I, before this, I wouldn't have been able to do a lot since I just came back from the neck surgery. But uh, we're finally slowly getting back to normal. So. <laughs> no, that's but, great. And you thank know, you so much. I just want to take this opportunity to thank all the fans and the wrestlers and promoters and whatever and everyone who supported me and and uh you know I've always said that I've had I've always had the world's greatest fans cuz no matter if I was doing a squash match or if I was in a title match my fans were always there behind me they never gave up on me I mean they're die hard fans sort of like Green Bay's fans <laughs> so hmm. I can't thank them enough. Without them, I wouldn't have been able to make a living at wrestling for a few years. Totally. Well, thanks so much for the time. It's been absolutely 100% amazing. This is where it's cut for the, uh, for the show. But Saturday, December 5th, WWE Hall of Famer, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff comes to Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. For more information, please visit collectorsworldva.com. And pricing starts at only $25. That's WWE Hall of Famer, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff, Saturday, December 5th, 2015, from 1130 to 1230 at Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. Visit collectorsworldva.com for more information because it's going to be absolutely wonderful.